Hello, this is Father Michael Eads from the Toronto Oratory, and you're listening to Lexio et Oratio, a short spiritual reading podcast followed by a reflection. The Life of St. Philip Neri by Antonio Galonio, Section 15, The Last Year of Philip's Life and His Holy Death. Chapter 172, Barsum, Archdeacon of Alexandria in Egypt, is restored to help. Barsum, the Archdeacon of Alexandria, came to Rome in the year 94 of our century in order to reconcile to Rome the Church of Alexandria, which desired to be cleansed of heresy. During October, while this business was in progress, he fell seriously ill. The disease caused him to spit black blood, which, in the opinion of the doctors, came from ruptured capillary veins in the neighborhood of the lungs or liver. He was also greatly troubled by fever, a constant cough, and difficulty in breathing. The coughing brought up blood and kept him awake all night and all day so that he was unable to sleep, the worst of his symptoms for days and nights on end. Cordelia was very doubtful if he would survive, and Girolamo Vecchietti, who also attended him, took the case to Philip. He found him vested for mass, and with his chalice already in his hand, and asked him to remember the archdeacon of Alexandria who was gravely ill. Philip promised that he would pray for him, And oh wonder, at the moment he began to offer the divine sacrifice, the sick man fell into a soothing sleep. They discovered this afterwards by comparing the times. It was just as the Holy Father was celebrating Mass that the archdeacon fell asleep after being awake so long. He slept for several hours. And as soon as he awoke, began to feel better. Philip had by this time completed Mass and remarked, Barsum will recover from his present illness. Then he called for Vecchietti and said, have the archdeacon moved to Cardinal Federico Borromeo's house at once. He is to remain there until he is quite recovered. Dr. Vecchietti was unsure what to do when he heard this for he dared not move a man so seriously ill, considering it extremely dangerous. And he thought he could not obey Philip's command without first asking permission of his superiors. Accordingly, in his perplexity, he tried to make excuses, but the Holy Father insisted even more, ordering him to obey until he gave in, as if the order had come from heaven. Trusting in Philip's prayers and his help, he had the sick man moved on a bier. I should not omit to mention that Philip persuaded Vecchietti to bring the sick man to himself before going on to the house of Cardinal Federico Borromeo. This he did for the sake of curing him, and it was not in vain. Philip embraced the man, and he was restored to health. He broke out into a copious sweat, 
had once felt himself restored to health and was cured of the spitting of blood, except for what had already gathered in his lungs, which he did afterwards expel. After that, Philip ordered him to be carried to Cardinal Borromeo's house. As he left, he begged the Holy Father to beseech God for his recovery, putting all his hope in him. Philip agreed, bidding him to hope every joy and expect a full recovery. He was not wrong, for a few days later, the patient completely recovered from his illness. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Angels of God, our guardians, dear, to whom God's love commits us here, ever this day be at our side, to light and guard, to rule and guide. Amen. Most sacred heart of Jesus, teacher of teachers, have mercy on us. St. Philip Neri, flower of purity, martyr of charity, vessel of the Holy Ghost, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Why does Father Galonio say that the archdeacon fell asleep for several hours? And then in the next sentence, say that after the man awoke, Philip had by this time completed Mass. Doesn't Mass normally take 30 minutes, maybe 40 minutes? A low Mass? Was Philip saying some kind of solemn high Mass? No, he was saying his Mass in his chapel. And as we've seen not too long ago, Philip had begun to say Mass in a private chapel at the Pope's command because his masses were taking several hours. Once St. Philip got to the Agnus Dei, he would strike his breast, and then he would begin to say the private prayers of preparation of the priest, and he would be lost in prayer for hours at a time. So this is not a misprint when he says that several hours later he awoke from a nice sleep and Philip had finished his mass. That's what was happening to Philip, and Philip gave way to the Holy Spirit. And so the Pope said, well, it's not fitting for you to say Mass publicly. This is going to attract crowds, and people don't want to sit there for that long anyways. They have, the, they have to get to work or their families. So you say Mass in your private chapel, and let the Holy Spirit do with you as he will. But Philip offered that Mass with this intention in mind. He was praying not just for the Archdeacon of Alexandria, but for the whole church of Alexandria, the whole church in Egypt, which had been at odds with Rome since the, since the 400s. So this had been going on for over a thousand years in which there was a, a disagreement, basically a kind of misunderstanding in some ways between what we now know as the Coptic Christians and the Catholics about the identity, or rather the nature of Christ. Is it right to say that Christ has a human nature and a divine nature? We all agree he's one person, 
but does he really have a true human nature or has that human nature somehow been kind of assumed into his divine nature? Is he truly like us in all things but sin? And so the Catholics defended that there are two natures, that they're distinct but not confused. They're united in a single person. There's one Christ. And these monophysites were very concerned about not falling into the idea that Christ is somehow two things. He has to be one person. And they were trying to defend this. And there was misunderstandings from the writings of St. Cyril. And after the Council of Chalcedon, there was further misunderstandings. And St. Philip recognized that in 1594, they were on the verge of a reconciliation between the great and heroic church of Egypt, which it still is today. It's a very remarkable group of Christians, even though they're still not in full communion with us. But Philip was on the verge of this reconciliation. And he went to the mass because th if this man were to die, if Barson was to die, then what would happen to this great reconciliation? And it's very fitting that Philip was praying, not just in general, but he was praying while offering the mass, the divine sacrifice. Why? Because what happens at the divine sacrifice? The bread becomes the body of Christ and the wine becomes the blood of Christ, just like Christ did at the Last Supper. And Christ offers himself the one sacrifice which he offered once and for all, he renews on that altar. Under what form? Bread and wine, food and drink. But how do we get bread? Bread is composed of many grains, which are taken and ground down and mixed together to form one host of bread. And how do you get wine? You take many grapes and you crush them together to form one chalice, which becomes the blood of Christ. And so in the Eucharist, you have the body of Christ under the appearance of bread, which is one, but made from many parts. And that is a perfect symbol of the church herself, because the church herself is one, one bride, one body, but it's made of many members. And you and I are part of this church. Those that are in Egypt are part of this church. And although we are many, we are one body in Christ. We are united to each other like the parts of a body are united to each other. The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. And so the Eucharist is the way in which that unity is symbolized the many grains forming one host, the many grapes forming one chalice, but becoming Christ himself. The Eucharist is the symbol of the unity of the church. That's why the priest does certain things at mass. He breaks the host. He mingles part of it with the blood. Some of those things are signifying the church herself is still suffering, for example. Part of the church is still suffering. And many things at the Mass are connected to this fact the Eucharist is a symbol of the Church. But it symbolizes, but what else? It causes what it signifies. It causes what it symbolizes. 
it accomplishes what it signifies. So that when we go to Mass, when we celebrate the Mass, when Philip was celebrating this Mass, he was helping to bring about the unity of the church. And every time we go to communion, every time we receive the Eucharist, we're meant to be drawn more and more by the Eucharistic body of Christ into the mystical body of Christ, the church. From the Eucharistic body, we become more and more part of his mystical part body, better parts, more alive parts, because each of us is a distinct part. Each of us has a work to do. And how do we live out that part we are in the body of Christ, the church? How do we become holier? How do we realize our connections with other people? Through the Eucharist, through the Eucharist. The Eucharist is the sacrament of the church's unity, the sign of the church's unity. The Eucharist makes the church and the church through her priests who carry on the ministerial priesthood of Christ, the church makes the Eucharist through the words of consecration, the power of the Holy Spirit. But then the Eucharist being received and offered makes the church more of what she is. In the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.